Good evening. How are you tonight? Well, good. Um, would you open your Bibles to start with to uh, Matthew 28? You probably already have. And um, as you do that, or I should say having done that, why don't you welcome all those who are listening by radio around the United States right now to our fellowship? Our little way to make you feel welcome, those who are listening. After the resurrection, Jesus got his disciples together, and he, in verse 16, the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There was a a prisoner who was put in uh, solitary confinement, and his cell was pitch black. To relieve boredom, he had a little marble he'd toss against the wall, and it would hit the wall, hit the floor, go around the room, and he'd listen for it, and it would stop, and he'd retrieve it, and then he'd do it all over again. There came a time when he got bored with relieving his boredom that way, decided to try something new. He thought, I'm going to throw this marble up in the air and I'm going to try to catch it. Of course, keep in mind, it's pitch black in the room. Throws it up, but he misses. So he waits, listens. He's going to let it hit the floor and then he's going to find it. No sound. It never hit the ground. And it struck him as odd thought about it, and the more he thought about it, the more disturbed he got, and he got more and more disturbed. What happened to the marble? I threw it up. Why didn't it come down? Did it vanish into thin air? It finally disturbed him so much that he went mad and he died. The guards that came in to remove his body from the cell, as they came in, the door was open, and the light struck something that caught the guard's eye. He looked up, and he saw a marble caught in a spider's web. And he thought, now isn't that the craziest thing? How on earth did that spider manage to get the marble all the way up there? (laughs) You know, we all have marbles in our lives. Those imponderable mysteries that we just can't see. There's not enough light. It's dark. We can't get a good grip on it, a good handle. Tonight we're going to look at, briefly, obviously in the time that we have, what I would consider is the greatest theological marble, the Trinity, the triune God. How can three be one? Have you ever grappled with that? We are not the first one. So many have. One British theologian said, the most difficult subject in Christian theology is the Trinity. By the end of the day, you may feel like you're still out at sea. Billy Graham said, the Bible teaches 
that God is but one, but He is manifested in three persons. Don't ask me to explain it. I can't. It's impossible for me. I accept it by faith. Mortimer J. Adler, who is the uh, editor emeritus of Encyclopedia Britannica, a believer, said, The greatest mistake anyone can make is to think that they can fully understand these mysteries, including the Trinity. Even Augustine, who was quite a theologian, pondered this day after day, and it almost drove him nuts. And one day, trying to figure it out, he got worse. In fact, he said he was worse at the end than at the beginning, when he just had a few questions. And one day, he's walking on the beach, and he notices a little boy taking a pail of water and pouring it into a hole. And he said, young man, what are you doing? The kid said, I'm going to take that ocean and put it in that hole. A light went on in Augustine's mind. He said, oh. That's what I've been trying to do. I'm trying to take infinite God and stuff Him in finite brain. I can't do it. He's much bigger than I am. There comes a point where I have to, as Billy Graham said, accept this by faith. The triune nature of God is tough to grasp. But it is not incomprehensible. After all, God understands it. And that seemed to be enough for the early church, the apostles, some in the post-apostolic era, certainly Jesus. And let me just say right off the bat, don't lose sleep if you can't unravel the truth of the Trinity. Last month, in fact it was just about a month ago exactly, it will be tomorrow, when there was a full moon out. I went outside and I checked it out and up where I live it's beautiful, you can see, because there's no lights around. And you can look up and you can see the moon with the naked eye, but you can't see the details of the moon. You don't see the dark side of the moon. You don't see the craters, uh, the valleys, etc. But a few days later, when it reached the phase called the waning gibbous, I took a telescope out and checked it out, and you can see at that phase, it's a little bit less reflection of the sun, You see the craters, you see the relief, you see the texture of the moon, the high places, the low places. And I think that knowing God is sort of like looking at a full moon. You're aware, He's there, you can see a little bit, you understand in part, but you don't get it all. And you can look at God through the telescope of Scripture and you get a a closer view, a, a revelation something you'd never seen before. But I think even after all of that, there still reaches a point where God is so infinite and we are finite that we never see quite clear enough this side of heaven. When it comes to the Trinity, we must be careful that we don't trivialize God by by reducing Him to a formula. I know we're tempted to do that, whether we say He's like a an apple or an egg or water, all those fine, funny little formulas for the Trinity. But we never walk away totally satisfied with them, do we? I never do. And I think it's simply, again, it's finite man's attempt to grasp this infinite being. There has been throughout history criticism of the Trinity, as with any truth, there's always a critic. Um, whether by ignorance or blindness, there is an attack of the critic against a biblical teaching. There was a minister who was opening his mail and he opened one letter and 
In the envelope was a single sheet of paper folded up. He unfolded the sheet of paper and there was one word in capital letters, FOOL. FOOL written across it. Somebody obviously wanted to get a message to this guy. FOOL. Next Sunday, when the pastor got in his pulpit, he announced to his congregation, he said, you know, I've known many people who have written letters and forgot to put their name on it. But this week I got a letter where a guy signed his name but forgot to write the letter. There there have been many fools throughout history who have denied God by denying the Trinity because it is paradoxical. It is incomprehensible to the human mind. We don't quite understand it, and so when we don't understand something fully, we begin to attack it sometimes. The criticism has been unfortunately, over something as simple as wording, semantics. It goes like this. Well, you never read the word Trinity in the Bible, do you? I don't. And so there must not be a Trinity. Well, so what? So there's no word Trinity. There's no word Bible in the Bible. Is there? But I own one. The words rapture aren't in the Bible. Second coming, that's not in the Bible. The word millennium isn't in the Bible, but the teaching of all those things is plain and clear in the Bible, as is the teaching of the Trinity. You see, the word Trinity is not a biblical term. It's a theological term. That is, it's this systematized formulation given to us of what the Bible teaches. Where do we get the term Trinity? It came from a guy named Tertullian, about 200 A.D., Trinitas in Latin. He's the guy that coined the term. That's where it first came into the church. And simply because there's no verbal expression of something, you can't deny the biblical principle just because you don't have the exact wording or verbal expression. Charles Spurgeon said, To have a gospel without the Trinity is like having a rope of sand that cannot hold together. Then Satan can overrun it. But give me a gospel with the Trinity and the might of hell cannot prevail against it. No man can any more overthrow it than a bubble could split a rock or a feather could break in halves a mountain. So the criticism has come on the, on the basis of semantics but it goes deeper than that. There are religious groups that have traditionally come against the teaching of the Trinity. They're anti-Trinitarian groups. Now, you know, something I notice when I read the New Testament, it was never really an issue to the apostles. I never read the apostles going here, hey, time out, Jesus, time out. What's this Father, Son, Holy Spirit bit? Or in the upper room when Jesus said, I'm going to pray the Father and He's going to send you another comforter, the Spirit of truth. He's going to be with you. He'll abide with you. No, wait a minute. Time out. How does It never seemed to be an issue with them. In fact, it wasn't an issue until a few hundred years after Christ, and I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. But they were there. They listened to Jesus say what He just said. In fact, a rabbi, Paul, didn't seem to have a problem with it. Over in Acts chapter 20, Paul is saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus. And as he's there on the beach before they all get together and have a hug and they weep in their departure, 
In verse 25 of Acts 20, Paul says, Indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, now now watch this, watch what he does in one sentence. Take heed, therefore, to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He takes the Trinity and he mixes it all together in his farewell statement to them. The Holy Spirit, He has made you overseers. The church is the flock of God, which God has purchased with His own blood. Obviously, meaning through Jesus Christ, His Son. Now, I don't want to bore you by going back through all of the historical attacks, whether it's monarchianism in the second century or the Arian heresy, which I mentioned some weeks ago, Arianism in the patristic era or during the Reformation, the Socinians, or Hegel and his philosophy, or Karl Barth and his neo-Orthodox theology. But all of these attacks throughout history get recycled. It's really the same stuff, the same arguments that get recycled and passed down through history that is still with us today. It's repetitive. The story about another minister. He was a visiting evangelist, and he preached a sermon from this pastor's pulpit, and after the sermon, somebody met this visiting evangelist in the foyer of the church and said, that's the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life. Took this guy back, and he went and told the pastor. He was shaken by it. Hey, this guy just told me in your church that what I just said was the worst sermon he ever heard in his life. The guy said, oh, don't worry about this guy. Don't take him seriously. You see, he's not really responsible for what he says. He has no original thought of his own. He's only repeating what everybody else says. And that's what I feel happens with attacks that come from anti-Trinitarians against those of us who believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One of the hallmark characteristics of a cult is their denial or their inadequate view of the triune nature of God. And they just repeat what has been said throughout history. Same accusation. It goes like this. Well, you know, the Trinity never really developed during the biblical times. It developed hundreds of years after The church became corrupted. That's because it was never an issue to Jesus, never an issue to the apostles, never an issue to Paul, never really an issue in the post-apostolic era. It's just that it became formulated, formulated in a creed hundreds of years later because people started attacking it. And as people started attacking it, they said, you know, we've got to get together and, and formulate what the Bible says on the triune nature of God. And so all of these attacks throughout history are still with us today, but they're not called monarchianism or Socinianism. They're called Jehovah's Witness. They're called Mormons. They're called Unitarians. They're called Oneness Pentecostal or the Way International. All anti-Trinitarian groups, some are as arrogant enough to say, the church has been wrong for 1,800 years till we came along. And we're here to set them straight. Perhaps for a more relevant look at it, Muslims deny 
obviously, the Trinity. In fact, the Trinity is not only illogical to a Muslim. uh, To believe in the Trinity is the one major sin that makes a person an infidel. According to the Quran, quote, infidels now are they who say God is the Messiah, the son of Mary. And uh, according to the Quran, God will be merciful to adulterers and liars, but not Trinitarians. In fact, such deserve hell in Surah 5 of the Quran, quote, whoever shall join other gods with God, God shall forbid him in the garden and his abode shall be the fire. And the Quran continues, the Messiah, the son of Mary, is but an apostle. Now, do you know that cults are making inroads into the church today? And do you know that Islam is the fastest growing religion on earth? And no wonder if the church doesn't know what it believes about the Trinity. How many Christians have heard an entire sermon on the Trinity? One veteran Jehovah Witness said, I have never before met a Trinitarian who actually seemed to believe the doctrine. You get the average person at the door and somebody who knows how to hammer him well enough pushes him into a corner. It's like, well, I guess you're right. So let's look then at the confirmation of the triune God. And let me just refer back to what we've already done. We have spent weeks looking at the deity of Christ, the personhood and the deity of the Holy Spirit. We have seen that in the New Testament, Jesus was called God, even though some critics say he never was. He was seen and referred to as God on several occasions. I don't know what Bible they read when they say that. After all, Thomas knelt down, did he not, and say, My Lord and my God, and Jesus accepted his worship. Jesus claimed to forgive sins, and his enemies said, Nobody can forgive sins except God. Jesus had no argument with that. Jesus claimed pre-existence. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And though a Jehovah Witness will say today, Jesus never claimed to be God, I don't know where you get that, even Jesus' enemies knew He claimed to be God because they picked up stones. And Jesus said, for what good work do you stone me? They said, not for a good work, but because you being a man continually make yourself God. Then we've also seen that the Holy Spirit is called God, Acts chapter 5. We saw that last week and a couple weeks back. Peter said, you haven't lied to man, but you've lied to God because you've lied to the Holy Spirit. We saw that the Holy Spirit possesses attributes of omnipresence and omniscience. But there's still that nagging question. How can three be one? I mean, isn't the basic premise of the Bible is that God is one? So let's see how this uh, is confirmed by the Scripture. And uh, perhaps it would be best, instead of turning to a whole bunch of texts, just writing them down for your own reference. You know, Israel was repeatedly warned against polytheism, the worship of many gods. God said, you're going into a land and the people around you believe in all sorts of crazy gods. Many gods. They got God of the sun, God of the moon, God of the fire, God of the earth, God of the pond, God of the stream, every all kind of gods. But the Lord your God is one was the basic premise. In fact, every morning and evening, the Hebrews recited and still do the Shema is Deuteronomy six four Shema Israel Yahweh Elohim Yahweh Echad. It was revised Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad, the Lord, 
Our God is one. But the very words that they used are telling. God, Elohim, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, Elohim, God, created the heavens and the earth. The word Elohim is a plural word. It's a masculine plural word that speaks of plurality in unity. It's not singular. That would be El. It's not even dual. That'd be Elah. This is Elohim. It's plurality, unity in plurality. And that scene, is it not? Just a few verses down, where in verse 26 and 27 of Genesis 1, then God, Elohim, said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And so God created man in his own image. Here's my question. Who's God talking to? Is he bored? Is he talking to himself? Well, he is talking within the Godhead in the Trinitarian sense. He's not talking to angels. Hebrews 1 says angels never created the heavens and the earth or helped God do it. The pivotal text is the one I mentioned, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word one, echad in Hebrew. That's what every child learns when he's a little kid. Echad, shtaim, shalosh, arba. It's how to count. The word echad does not mean one in isolation, but one in unity. You never find in the Bible the word echad, one, meaning a stark singularity, but always a unity. For instance, one bunch of grapes. One people called the people of Israel. Or one couple. When Eve was brought to Adam, for this reason, God said, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined into his wife, and the two shall become echad, one flesh. Now, does that mean that they're not two separate people any longer? No. Does that mean they actually morph into this one being? And I've met couples that look alike after many years, but I don't think that's the idea here. It's not the idea. The idea is that in marriage, there is unity in their plurality. They are echad. There's, it's one couple. It's one family. Trinity is seen again in Isaiah chapter 6. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who, who will I send who will go for us? It's God is speaking. Isaiah predicted the Messiah as one born into this world, yet called everlasting God or the mighty God, the everlasting Father. We see throughout the Bible things called theophanies or Christophanies, the seeming appearance of Christ in physical form, even in the Old Testament. We see the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters at creation, coming on certain ones to anoint them. We just read in Matthew the baptismal formula. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul, a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, growing up with the monotheistic viewpoint, God is one. This rabbi, Paul, converted to Christ, gave this creed, this benediction in 2 Corinthians 13. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's virtually throughout the whole Bible. You know, somebody once said that if all 
All who profess to be Christians would read their Bibles at one time. It would be the biggest dust storm in history. <laughs> and I think that really is the problem. We've got to go back to the Bible. We've got to actually read the Bible. Novel thought. But I believe and I've seen that virtually all of the ignorance about God comes from the lack of reading what the Bible says. Jesus was right. He said to the leaders, You err because you don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. I think that could be said of some today. There is a historical confirmation as well. The Bible is replete with it. There are many, many, many other instances I just didn't go through. We have done so in the past. Um, There is a historical confirmation. You know, many are unaware of this, that the Trinity, the triune nature of God, has always been defended and upheld throughout church history. Now, cults deny this because they don't know their history. Sort of like the teacher who asked one of the kids in her class, what are the Phoenicians famous for? And one little boy said, blinds. (laughs) He didn't know his history. He didn't pass. And those who deny the Godhead are those who do not know church history. Let me give you a sampling of it. Clement of Rome, 96 A.D., formulated all three members of the Godhead into a single oath. He said, quote, As God lives, and as the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and as the Holy Spirit lives. Ignatius, in 107 A.D., used the formula for the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hermas, during the second century, spoke of one God existing in three separate persons. Justin Martyr, in the second century, defended the veneration that the church gave at that time to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then there was Irenaeus during the second century, probably the greatest theologian after the apostolic era. And... Here was a guy who spent his time um, arguing against, defending the church against an attack some of you may have heard of called Gnosticism. And in defending the Gnostic beliefs that were trying to come into the church, he also articulated the doctrine of the Trinity, saying, among other things, God the Father, the Word, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was made among men visible and tangible, and the Holy Spirit, who at the end of the age was poured out in a new way. Then I mentioned at the beginning of the study that guy named Tertullian, late 2nd century, early 3rd century. He's the guy that coined the phrase Trinitas, Trinity, three in one, triune God. And he also came up with another term he applied to each person, each member of the Godhead, persona. Trinitas et persona, the the persons individually of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Years later, and we mentioned this some weeks ago, the Nicene Creed, it was mentioned in the video that you just heard. 325 A.D., there was that guy that came up named Arius who denied the Trinity, denied the deity of Christ, denied the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And so 300 guys, theologians, got together and decided, we need to formulate this creed. And they did, the Nicene Creed. There's even an ancient symbol, and some of you have seen it if you have a New King James Bible. It used to be right on the edge here, but it's usually a couple pages in from the front, called a triquetra. It's this little triangular 
in Latin it means three-cornered. And it was an ancient symbol that was picked up by the church and used as early as the 8th century A.D. to speak about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three interwoven arcs that are distinct but inseparable and equal. And it became the symbol picked up for this version of the Bible. So, so, today, if somebody comes along and denies that the Trinity exists, they are denying the Old Testament, the New Testament, and they are assuming the most arrogant position of all, saying, Christians have always been wrong for 2,000 years. I'm here to enlighten you. They're denying Scripture and they're denying history. You know what? The problem can't be resolved in our finite minds. There is a thing that one theologian refers to as an antinomy, something against human reason, where you have two things that seem like contradictions. They're they're two truths. They're held in tension. They seem like contradictions, but both are true conclusions. I'll give you an example in science and physics. Light. We can show that light demonstrates itself to be wavelength radiation. We can also see that light is particle radiation. But it's not apparent to us how something can be both particle and wavelength at the same time, but we know they are. It's not apparent how there is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is called and worshipped as God. The Son is called God and worshipped as God. And the Holy Spirit is called God and worshipped as God. They're three persons, but it's one God. But it is. And you know what it's like? Like a suspension bridge, isn't it? You have this truth over here and this truth over here, and they're pulling against each other, and it's the very fact that they pull against each other that it holds the suspension bridge up. You need something pulling in opposite directions. If you remove one, it'll fall. If you remove the other, it'll fall. So let it stand. Now, I want to end just by giving you what I call your connection with the triune God. What does it all mean to us personally? We can speak uh, at arm's length and be theological about it and say, see, that's what the Bible says. We're right. But I always like to ask a question when I read anything in the Bible. Here's the question. So what? Isn't that a good question? Deep theological question? So what? But I ask that every week. What does the fact that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what does that have to do with you and with me? How do I relate to the triune God today? Would you just look with me over? I know you've read it, but let me refresh you again in John chapter 14. Just turn over there. We've spent some time digging through this area of Scripture. You might want to go back over it after tonight and just read it devotionally. I'm impressed that Jesus never taught theology directly. He always taught theology indirectly. What was of paramount importance to Jesus was practicality. What does this mean to these guys that I'm discipling? And so he said, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you. He will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. 
Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, another guy, said, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Don't you love how Jesus just says, Let's get back to what's important. We're going to come. We. We're going to be with you. We're all going to climb inside of you, so to speak. And we're going to dwell with you, empowering in you. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. And he keeps talking, and he mentions the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You might say the Father is the planner. The Son is the provider. The Spirit is the enabler. All three have their parts. Okay. On a practical level, let me give you three things to go home with. Three things that you can do, I think, to enhance your relationship with the triune God. Number one, in awareness. In awareness. Be aware during the day. Just just try that. This practicing the presence of God, as Brother Lawrence used to love to call it. Be aware that there is three are three persons in one Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And as you read the Bible, start looking for the differences, for who is talked about when and what is referred to, even like in the Psalms where there are messianic Psalms, yet the Holy Spirit is present. And as you do, start learning how the Holy Spirit works through history, in the world, in the church, in you. In this awareness, avoid the tendency of reductionism. I mean, thinking of God as just the Father only or the Son, Jesus only, or the Spirit only. Avoid that. Awareness, number two, devotion. Devotion. You know, when Jesus taught His disciples to pray, He said, look, you don't have to ask me anymore to ask the Father. You can come directly to the Father, so go for it. Pray. Talk to the Father. And ask anything in My name. So He taught us to pray to the Father in His name. But we see that there's a variation in the Bible. For instance, Stephen, when he was being stoned, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul refers to believers as those who everywhere call upon the name of Jesus. Then in Acts 13, it says, The Holy Spirit said to the church, Separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work I've called them. And when they had fasted and prayed. So there's evidence that the church was giving glory to the Holy Spirit. So, in your awareness, in your devotion, and number three, in your fellowship. In your fellowship with one another. The Trinity is practical. Look at it this way. The Trinity, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are like the perfect example or archetype for our love, our unity, our fellowship. That's what Jesus prayed. He said, Father, I pray for these these Christians, that they may be one as we are one. May they be one as we are one. So the example for unity among the church is the Trinity. Now listen carefully to this. The ultimate reason why Christians should reconcile and resolve conflict, the ultimate reason why those married should stay together, The ultimate reason why churches should not split isn't because of legal constraints, but because of Trinitarian love. 
that they may be one as we are one, Father. So as we close, I want to say in the midst of this question, how can three be one? Let the tension remain. Get used to it. Live with it. Love it. Because it's like that suspension bridge. Two truths held in tension, one pulling this way, one pulling that way, and because of their force enacted, the edifice stands. And just remember this. The disciples were okay with this. The apostles were okay with this. The early church was okay with this. Paul was okay with this. In the post-apostolic era, they were okay with it. It wasn't until there were attacks against the church that they had to formulate all these creeds. Well, there was a schoolgirl who took a test on an anatomy class, and she failed. In fact, she was the only girl in the class that failed. You'll understand why she failed. This is what her test read. The human body is composed of three parts, the brainium and the borax and the abdominal cavity. The brainium contains the brain, the borax contains the lungs, liver, and living things, and the abominable cavity contains the bowels, of which there are five, A, E, I, O, (laughs) and U. I honestly don't feel much different from that girl when it comes to trying to comprehend a subject as vast as the Godhead. Great is the mystery of godliness, Paul said. God was manifest in the flesh. Just the incarnation is, let alone the triune God. I I feel we've got a, a marble up there. Why didn't it come down? Now, it can drive you mad. You can go nuts. They can drag your body out. Or you can say, it's illogical to me, but it's not incomprehensible to God. So I'll live with it. You know, the more I study the Bible, I don't know about you, but the bigger God gets and the smaller my little brain gets. You think, well, the more you study the Bible, the smart, the dumber I get. <laughs> and that's the way it ought to be. Heavenly Father, for our little brains on earth to try to get our thinking around this truth that is very apparent and very clear that you are called God and worshipped as such and yet your son Jesus is called God and worshipped as such and the spirit is referred to God possessing the attributes thereof and is glorified as such it's hard for us to figure that out sometimes we even go to the extreme of Should I stop talking to you and start talking to Jesus, your Son, and then to the Spirit just so that nobody will feel bad? But Lord, that really isn't the issue. And as long as we acknowledge who you are and glorify you as seen in the Bible, none of that really matters. Because as Paul said, we're weak when we pray. We don't even know what we ought to pray for. But your Spirit is the one who intercedes for us. So, Lord, we admit our weakness. We see an apparent paradox or contradiction, and yet we by faith stand and believe it. And, Lord, I pray that in our awareness, 
Father, in our devotion to you, and Lord, in our fellowship with one another, there would be the evidence of that beautiful unity of work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in our families, our marriages, our church, all our relationships. In Jesus' name, amen.